Hello, my name is Kelly Williams. Our scripture reading today is found in James chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 6. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. So you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask of God. When you ask, you do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, today we are going to be thinking about decisions that we make, that when we make them, they seem to direct the whole course of our lives. Do you know what I mean, uh, do you know what I mean when I say that? It, it would be like um, if you filled out your NCAA brackets and chose Florida. It's over. It's, it's, it's over. Maybe I can come up with a better illustration here. Um, I'll take you back to when I was um, in college when I should have been studying for an exam. I was reading the book by C.S. Lewis, That Hideous Strength, and this was a section I've never forgotten. Uh, That Hideous Strength is a story of a young married couple, Dr. Mark Studdock, and his wife, Jane, who is a Ph.D. candidate, Uh, so it's a lot like Caltech or Fuller students, but even though they were newly married, they were having marriage trouble, and their lives were going in two different directions away from one another. Uh, James was heading toward God and toward a godly community called St. Anne's, while Mark was walking away from all of that to the opposition community called Belbury. And more and more he was wanting to get on the inside and to have prestige in this new community, but he wasn't able to get it. But they, they began to ask him to do something that he felt was wrong. They began to ask him to write newspaper articles that were not true sometimes about things that hadn't happened, and to put the opposition group into a bad light. He he resisted it, simply knowing that this was wrong until one day, because he so much wanted to be on the inner circle and to have more prestige, he wrote his first deceitful article that led to a whole life of deception. So I want you to listen to how Lewis describes this. I'll never forget this, reading this late at night one night. Here's what he said. This was... The something Mark had been asked to do, which he himself, before he did it, clearly knew to be wrong. But the moment of his consent almost escaped his notice. 
Certainly there was no struggle, no sense of turning a corner. There may be times in the world's history when such moments reveal their gravity, but for Mark it simply slipped past. And that one step, that one decision led him down a path of ever-increasing deception. It seemed so small, and that it was the step away from God. Now, we're on the fifth uh, weekend of Lent. And at Lent, what we're doing is looking inside of our lives and looking at those things that Jesus had to die for that are still not all that he would have them to be. Because he didn't die just to forgive us of the past, but to remake us. And today we come to this matter of looking inside of ourselves and asking, what is it that actually motivates me to make decisions that many times are counter to what I know God would have me to do? So so I'll just ask you, can you think of any decision in your entire life that that once you made it, it really shaped your whole life and you knew there was no turning back? I'm sure you can think of many of them. Uh, Some of them are good. Uh, Decisions to to, to go to a certain school, a decision to get married, to go into a certain career. You know what I'm talking about. But many of the decisions that you and I make, and I think we make them on a daily basis, are decisions like Mark Studdock in my, in my sermon illustration was making. It was a decision where he knew this was wrong, and yet he wanted to do this because of what it would do for him. So he was torn. And the decision that we make sets or establishes often a direction of our lives. I think this happens to us so often. And really the matter I want to talk to you about today is so central to, to what brings us to church today. At the heart of this actually living as a Christian is this matter of making daily decisions to live for God rather than to just live for ourselves or the way the world lives. Because from, from the beginning to the end in the New Testament, what we are told is this, that when we become Christians, it's not just that we believe it and keep living the way we used to live. It's a complete turnaround of our whole lives. The very words that are used for you and me being followers of Jesus are words that that speak to that. The word repentance means I was going down this way. No, that's not the right way. This isn't. I'm going to turn around and give my life to God. The word that we so often use of conversion is the very same kind of thing. I'm headed this way. No, 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 that's not the right way. We turn around and head back toward God. Uh, The Apostle Paul, he wrote about this perhaps more than anybody. And you can perhaps imagine why. If you know, because he'd experienced it, right? (laughs) He'd been out killing Christians, and then he turned into one himself. So he would say, listen, this really is life-changing. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for him. And in one of the most concise places, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, He talks about one of the marks that helps us to know if a person is truly a follower of Jesus or not. And this is what he says. When there's sometimes you wonder, people claim to be Christians. He says, here is the way that you can know for sure. That when your lives and your words confess, Jesus is Lord. He makes it just that simple. It's when our lives and our words profess that Jesus is is Lord. Well, we're going to think about that today, and we're going to let uh, Pastor James teach us, as he's been teaching us for a number of weeks, how when we follow Jesus, that, that matter of which I used to live, I want to do this. And what I want, 
is what's going to direct my life is converted to I want what he wants in my life. And, and Pastor James, in case you're just visiting with us today, uh, when he talks about things, he doesn't, he doesn't do it in some vague way, does he? He goes right at it. And he does that as well today because I think what he sensed was there were people who had been in this church who claimed to be Christians but really were continuing to live the way they had always lived, live the way that the world lives. And he wants them to know that, no, 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 when you follow Jesus, it's going to transform your life. Bottom line, it's going to be good. Hard, but with the power of God possible, and it's going to be good. But the problem was that because so many people who claimed to be Christians were not really living for Christ, it had been devastating for people's personal lives. Many people were ripped up inside. It had been devastating, I think, for family and marriage relationships. And it had been destructive of the churches, too. So I'm going to look at what he had to say. We're going to start where he starts, what, what I call it, the outworking of this problem, where, where it ends up. Uh, I called it deep disturbances of the peace. And by that, the, the word peace in Hebrew was shalom, that beautiful word, which means it, when we live life the way it's been created to be lived. And he says, when we walk away from God, we're not going to experience that. And in verse 1 of chapter 4, he said, there are wars and battles among you. Now, uh, last week in my message, I said that the Bible tells us there are two paths of wisdom. And I call that two paths that can lead us toward what we think is going to be a good life. Uh, there's the world's way of going at it, and it seems to be so good. seems to be so promising. But he says at the end of that, and if you look at verse 16, it, it leads to chaos, and it leads to us engaging in evil. He said, but there's another way. Jesus came into this world to introduce, put us on a different path. And the path of wisdom leads to, and verse 17 just describes the life of Shalom. And in verse 18 even turns us into peacemakers. So when we follow Jesus, shalom should reign. And then he asks the question, then why are there wars and battles among you? See, that's, what, that, that's what's going on here. Now, I have heard a lot of sermons about this text in my life. And almost always when I've heard sermons, people pull it out of what I think James is talking about and they say, preacher, you should preach about, or the preacher thinks I should preach about all those wars and conflicts out there in the world. It's almost as if if James were, were, were in, in uh, Lake Avenue Church, we would look out that we would read the newspapers and we'd, we'd watch the media clips and we'd say, why is there conflict everywhere in the world? Why is there conflict in Russia and Ukraine? Why is there conflict in Egypt? This world is messed up out there and preached to all the problems being back there. Now, I'll tell you uh, what James says has something to say about that. But if I talked about just what's happening out there, I would miss the whole point of this sermon. And you don't want me to do that, right? Well, maybe you do. He's talking about us. He's not talking about the world out there. He is talking about the church. Why are there wars and battles among you, is what he's saying. And yes, the language is just that strong. Some of our translations sort of soften it to quarrels and strife. I mean, that's bad enough. But the word that he uses is war and battle. And later he even uses the language of murder. So a lot of people are saying, what is he saying? Are people murdering one another in his churches there? 
Well, there's, there's no evidence that that happened. I mean, at least not people taking out knives and actually physically going at it. But I'm telling you, verbally and emotionally, they must have been destroying one another. Why are there wars and battles among you there in the local church? Um, I have so many times had people say to me, Pastor, wouldn't it be so wonderful if we could go back and be the church like the New Testament church? Uh, do you see how they had a hard time sometimes getting along to? And that's been true of the church throughout history. And if you're new to church, you need to understand what God's doing here so, so you can be a part of it with us. Is that God takes people like us so different from one another and all of us bring baggage with us here. All of us, when, before we come to Jesus, have patterns of life that aren't the way God would have them to be. And then he brings us into this one community and he says, there, be one family, be one body. And it's not easy. Uh, he doesn't just say, poof, you're going to be perfect in a moment. But he begins a work in us. And while he's doing that work in us, sometimes we just get at it here. And that, that was in the New Testament church. That's been in the church throughout history. Don't be surprised by that. Uh, I, I was thinking of a 17th century Jewish philosopher, uh, Benedict Spinoza. Who, who was so drawn to Jesus. He, he read about the Gospels and, and loved the Jesus that he saw here. And then he met uh, Christians in a church. And, and, and it was hard for him. And he couldn't understand it. And, and this has been said so many times, but I'll pass down what he wrote. Spinoza said, I have often wondered that persons who make a boast of professing the Christian faith, namely the love and the joy, peace, temperance and charity to all men should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily toward one another with such bitter hatred that this rather than the virtues they claim is the readiest criterion of their faith now even though we shouldn't be surprised by this sort of thing James is here to say it can't stay that way we must let God shape our personal lives and the lives of the church. That, that's what's going on here. The, the pastor James knew very well what his half-brother Jesus had said just before he went to the cross. Remember when he said, how is this world going to know that you are really my followers? You know what he said. If you have love one for another, where you bring people together in from so many backgrounds, and actually the world looks and says, what are they doing there worshiping together? And They even seem to like and love one another. He said, that's how people are going to know God is there and Jesus is real. And I'll tell you, there is nothing, nothing more powerful still in the San Gabriel Valley than if we who are so different had just kind of look around you. Yeah, there's some wonderful looking people up in the balcony too. We're, we're so different, different ages, different, different backgrounds, different interests. We have so many different things about us. But when we come together and we get our voices together and praising God and people see that we reconcile some challenges that are there, then they'll, they'll know that this must be real. There's nothing more powerful to draw people to Jesus than when God's people love one another simply because we love Him. Amen. Now on the flip side, there is nothing that is going to demean the name of Jesus more thoroughly and damage the cause of Christ more completely than when we battle and don't find a way to reconcile. I've met so many young people who grew up in a church where there were big fights, never reconciled. And I'll tell you, 
even though they love Jesus maybe, you'd never get them back into a church. I've met so many others like myself who within the context of the church experienced people who loved one another and loved them. And I'll tell you, as they get to be older and as the struggles come, you can't drive them away from the church because they've experienced something real that is here. So that, that is the problem. Why are there wars and battles among you? Pastor James took that thing seriously. So do I. Uh, he wouldn't just pass over this theme and just say, well, maybe they'll work it out. Neither can I. It's central to what it means to follow Jesus. Which brings me to the second question that he asks. So what causes it? What's the cause of this problem? And it really, look inside, he says it's proudly pursuing our own desires. And the way, is not the source of conflict your cravings for your own pleasure that wage war inside yourself? Now again, it would be so comfortable just to apply this to the world out there. We could, I can almost hear it. Well, pastor, you are right. The, the problem in the world is this frustrated human desire. Uh, Putin wanted Ukraine, so he used violence to go after it. Uh, there are people that even though they may be in a marriage relationship, feel a real strong temptation to somebody else, and they go after that, and in doing it, they destroy that person's marriage, they destroy their own marriage, and they destroy both families. That's the way it is in the world, Pastor. Go at the world. And, and again, I'll say, that's right. It's everybody saying, I want what I want, that leads to us getting in, you know, into battles and dissent with one another. But I'll tell you again, if I just preach out there, I'm going to miss the whole point. He is saying, why is this happening among those who claim to follow the Jesus who gave his life? Gave his all so that you and I could be in the family of God. And he says, it's the same problem that you see out there in the world. Personal entitlement. We crave what we want. We crave, the way he puts it, our own pleasures. Now, now there are two different ways he could take this thing. He says that for the pleasure that you're craving that wages war inside you. Uh, on a personal level, what he's saying is this, and, and I think all of us know, understand this well. He is saying you all know these times, almost daily in our lives, where there is something that you really want to do. I mean, you feel this tug. And yet, like Mark Studdock, you say, but that's wrong. I know this is right. Anybody ever experienced that? Amen. I, won't, I won't ask you to. I'd be very suspicious of you if you didn't raise your hand. I ask you. So he says what happens is it's like a war inside yourself, especially once you become a Christian. Because once you have the, become a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within, convicting us when we go in the wrong direction. So here's what happens in my life, and I imagine in so many of yours as well. You have this strong temptation to go this way. You know it's wrong. You, you get this strong conviction, I've got to go God's way. But you go this way anyway, and he says it's like a war inside your member. It's like you're ripped up inside. No shalom, no peace. He's going to tell us how to find it. He also is though talking about the church, and the very way he puts it, he, he talks about among your members, which could mean my body, but it also means the church fellowship. And that's the main thing I think he's getting at. Why is it that sometimes Christians in a church family have a hard time getting along? And he says it's because everybody wants their own pleasure. And the word that he uses for pleasure is the word for hedonism, which is that philosophy that the chief good is my own pleasure. 
Now, do you see how this plays out in the church? If everybody is coming to church saying, what, this is what I like, this is what I want, I'm not really worshiping unless I get what I want. The problem in a church like ours is, we're so different, we have such different interests, don't we? We have such different things that we like and, and dislike. How are we ever going to be able to be one body worshiping God together, bringing praise to Him together, if every one of us comes to church saying, I want my own pleasure. And if I don't get it my way, I'm I'm not going to show up anymore. I'm going to leave that place. Or if we stay in, we'll just fight with one another. That's what he's getting at. Now, you've got to get me right here. I I, I don't want to miscommunicate this. Um, He's not saying that pleasure is wrong. In fact, all pleasure that is real pleasure is created by one person. Every good gift comes from God. Pleasure. We, we even have our greatest joy in finding pleasure in our relationship with God. He's made us for Himself. So that, that is not the issue. It's not that. Oh man, if there's something about church that you like, you must be unspiritual. There's something wrong with you. You've got to find a church where you hate everything that's happening there. Any joy that you have, you don't want that. It, it can't be that. Because once again, the point is that when we really surrender to God and give up our own preferences simply because we want to praise God together, then we find joy, then we find shalom. Lewis, C.S. Lewis wrote about this too. This is my C.S. Lewis Sunday. Uh, and in what, that profound book, Screwtape Letters, uh, it, it's a series of letters that, that he wrote that made it into the, to the London Times. And if you haven't read it, it's, it's, you have to rethink it when you read it because it's written from the perspective of a senior devil named Screwtape writing to a junior devil named Wormwood about how to tempt us and pull us away from God, you see. And, and Wormwood thought he'd come up with the best way to pull us away from God. And he says, I'm going to use pleasure to pull them away from God. And this is what Lewis wrote, his ninth letter. I wish I could write like this. So powerful. So, Screwtape says to Wormwood, Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. Do you know who the enemy is? It's God. God from his perspective. I know that we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasure... All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. We must foster an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. We must get the man's soul and give him nothing in return. See, God created it. So, so when we see this is how God would have me to live, it's not going to ruin your life. Jesus did not give his life on the cross to wreck your life. He gave his life so that when you follow him, at last, things come together and you find the shalom for which he made you. When we put pleasure into the place of God and we say, that's what I want, I'm going to have it no matter what, then it's going to rob us of our souls. It's going to destroy our hearts and destroy our lives. The word that he uses for craving is a word I've talked with you about before. The Greek word is epithumia. And it means that longing for something that if I can't have that thing, I will not be happy. 
So we can put that into the church uh, and we can just think, well, if, I, if I can't have it, uh, then I'm, I'm going to do so. I'll leave. I'll, I'll, I'll cause problems. I'll cut off relationships in order to get what I want. He says you murder. You destroy things simply to satisfy your own lusts. Let me just say it. If you and I are going to find true pleasure, uh, our epithumia must be God. The deepest longing of your heart and mine must be to know God and to live God's way. When anything else comes into his place, it's going to let you down. Now, Pastor Jeff Leo, I was talking about this Tuesday, and he said, you've got to make sure they see how strongly he talked about this because he thinks in our society we are just as strongly driven toward self-centered pleasure as his society was. Do you think that's possible? Uh, I think it really is here in Southern California. So he said, you've got to speak as strongly as James did. And Jeff sort of pointed out that it feels like when you read it, a loving parent turning to a son or daughter who's walked away and gone the wrong direction and saying, you, you, you. I love you with an everlasting love. You're wrecking your life. Parents, have you ever said anything like that? Or at least felt it? Um, Look at the way James puts it in verses 2 and 3. You, I love you, my people. You long deeply for things and do not get them, so you commit murder. You, You passionately desire things and cannot obtain them. You fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask God. But when you do ask... You do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. You ask only so that you can spend whatever you get on your own pleasures. See see what he's getting at? This prayer, this thing is where I enter into God's presence and surrender myself to him and say, Lord, I can't believe you love me. Here is my life. I will follow you. Becomes the flip side of that. Good. I can pray now. I can get what I want from you. But he says you turn it into a time not seeking for divine wisdom, not for God to make His will known, but only to get what you want. See, there's the problem. Living, wanting only what I want. And the result, verses 4 and 5, it puts us at war with God. We walk away from God. Verse 4, more James-like language. You adulteresses, Whoever chooses to love the world, and your, your version may say have friendship with the world, but it really means just to be focused on the live the world's way, makes himself an enemy of God. I'll tell you, this is strong language. Usually James, Pastor James, calls his people my brothers and sisters. He's talking to his church people when he says adulteresses. How would you like me to start my sermon that way? Would you wake up? What's wrong with this man? He had a bad week, is what you would think. What's going on here? Uh, Long-time Bible readers, you you probably understand it. James was a Jewish man, and in the the Older Testament, in, in the prophets, again and again and again, God would say this, I love you with an everlasting love to his people, the people of Israel, uh, and I'm entering into a covenantal relationship with you. I will be faithful to you. I will love you with an everlasting love. So so he says, what is it like? It is like a husband to a wife. I stand before the altar and I make my vow. I will be faithful to you. So that's the relationship that's there. And then in the Old Testament, again and again, the people were unfaithful to God. So God became like a cuckold. 
a husband rejected by his wife. And again and again, whether it's Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, and especially the book of Hosea, where, where, where uh, the prophet is told to take an adulteress to be his wife, just to show them what's happened here. Uh, so in this now to the church, and, and this morning we've had communion, God has entered into a covenant with you and me. It's like a marriage. Ephesians 5 talks about it that way. And if this, establishment, this covenant is established by the blood of Christ. He says, I will take you to be mine. I will love you with an everlasting love. I will forgive you when you come. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Isn't it beautiful? And then we walk away from him. You adulteresses, James says. So what's he saying? James was saying here, and I've written so you can just think about it. He was proclaiming that church people were putting someone into God's place and being unfaithful to God. Who is he talking about? Who is competing with God for our heart's affection? I got one answer. <laughs> it's you and me. He's saying you're putting your own desires into my place. You're trying to marry yourself, which is a rather unattractive option for me. And yet we're tugged to go in that direction. That's what James is preaching. Again, let me just say that, that James is preaching to the church, not to the world here, because I, I quickly think we go to this matter of, well, yeah, that's the way the world is. They always lust after things out there and they have all these cravings. They say, well, that's the way I want to live. That's the way I'm built to live. God must be okay with it. Then we bring that whole thing into the church in which we say, well, uh, that's really what I want to do. That passion must be from God, so it must be okay with God. And James is saying, like Gershwin, it ain't necessarily so. In fact, many times our own cravings will lead us away from God. We need to come back to his word and say, Father, my life is yours. I trust you. You are good. You are good. Do you believe that? I I think in our practical decision-making, we don't always believe that. We really believe that if I can't go my own way, it's not going to be good. And God says, trust me, obey me, and you will find life. See, he's talking to us. We we can't expect uh, that people in the world who have no relationship with God and who don't know how good God is will ever have any reason to live for anybody else other than ourselves. So the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 would tell us that when we come to Christ, our lives have to be different from the world outside. And he talked especially about sexual morality there. And he said this, and I don't know if you've ever even noticed this verse, 1 Corinthians 5.12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? See, we shouldn't be surprised that the people of the world walk away from God. They don't know Him. But once you and I have come to God, we've got to walk to Him, running into His arms. And I've written it again so you can see it, so that when you and I have experienced the beauty of God's salvation through faith in Jesus, our heart's longing, our epithumia, has to be to please Him because we trust Him. So practically speaking, the starting point of every day of our lives should be, Jesus, You are my Lord. I'm going to obey you no matter what you ask me to do because I trust you. 
Lord Jesus, you know, this today, just like yesterday, I'm going to feel some of these tugs inside to go this way. But I am going to live for you, not for myself. My wants are going to be changed. I don't think I wrote it that way, did it? My wants are going to be changed. It's no longer this thing, I'm just going to want what I want, and that's what I'm going to do. But I'm going to want what you want. And find your life. Uh, verse 5 says, God has, has given a spirit to us and he, he jealously longs for us. And, and it's the hardest verse in the Bible to translate. Uh, but, but really, it, it's so powerful what he's really saying. It's just telling us God, the, one, the husband who brought us into a marriage relationship with him, is a jealous lover. Husbands and wives, those who are married, uh, if you're being faithful and your spouse is not, and you love your spouse, you know you want to go and hold on. You're ready to forgive. You want, do you know what I'm talking about? So God says, I want to hold on. I come after you. I'm ready to forgive you. And I will never let go. But I ask you to be faithful. I ask you to be faithful. Which brings me to the hope. So you have those choices. Tomorrow, you're going to have, today, you're going to have the choice. This is what God would have me to do. This is what I want to do. What do you choose? What do you choose? You might think that I've, I've chosen the wrong way so often. Is there any hope? So I'm going to leave you some, with some hope. Because James does too. After that really hard language, the hope is God's grace. Chapter 4, verse 6. It's just amazing. Boom, you adulteresses. You, you, you. And then he says, but God gives greater grace. You don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. This is a celebration of the gospel. There is always grace, and it is greater than our sins. So that whenever you come to church and say, is his grace great enough that he's going to stick with me all through this process of me becoming what he'd have me to be when I'm so far from that now, and I say, yes. God's grace is greater than our sins, and his grace is coupled with his power, which means through the power of the Spirit within us. We have the promise of a completely different future. That when he, you and I are done because of this beauty of the grace of God, we are going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ himself. And until, until it happens, verse 2, we have to keep asking him. You do not have because you don't ask God. But, but asking God means not give me what I want. It means a humble surrender saying, will you take me back? And he says, yes. Lord, will you help me to live for you this week? And he says, I'll give myself to you. I love the way he quotes Proverbs 3, 34. God opposes the proud when we put ourselves in his place, but he gives grace to the humble. I want to close right now. I'll ask our musicians to come. Uh, I was made aware of a wonderful song by Audrey Assad. In, in which she uses the, the notion of wanting in several different ways. Uh, I shall not want. I'll never lack anything because of God. I shall not want those things of acceptance, those things of my own passions. I'll just have you look at it. We can make this our prayer. From the love of my own comfort, from the fear of having nothing, from a life of worldly passions. Deliver me, O oh God.
from the need to be understood, from the need to be accepted, from the fear of being lonely. Deliver me, O God, and I shall not want. No, I shall not want when I taste your goodness. I shall not want. Let's pray. Father, may this be true of us. Even now, as the music will be sung and played, show us areas of our lives where we put ourselves in your place. Call us to humble surrender. Remind us of your grace. Fill us with your shalom. Because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.